The following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. Dude, I gotta tell you, after a week in the Dominican Republic, uh-huh. I am happy to come back to four degree weather and snow because I have not had a good martini. <laughs> if you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, if you're not into yoga, if you have half a brain, if you like making love at midnight in the dunes on the cape, then I'm the love that you've looked for. Write to me and escape. We went to the Republic once. We also went to Punta Cana, and uh, we will not be going back because it was so terribly sanitized where all you did was go to the feed troughs with the rest of the crew, drink really bad alcohol, like Fred's vodka or whatever, and then sleep. And that was basically it. So I understand um, there is no such thing as a good martini in the Dominican Republic. You saw the professionals out there as well with the giants, almost like coffee carafe-sized mugs. And I figured since they water down the drinks at an all-inclusive, the only way these guys are getting as liquored up as they sound is by having these giant tubs of pina coladas. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, I've been to all-inclusives before and I'll be sitting in the sun and go through, I don't know, six, seven rum and Cokes. And nothing. Nothing at all. There's there's just like a little bit of rum flavoring in there. And that's it. Yeah. So, you know, here we are, 1130 at night, with this beautiful view that overlooks the ocean. And the doors are open. Technically, you're overlooking the sea because it's the uh, it's it's not the ocean. It's the, it's the Caribbean on one side, but it's the Atlantic on the other, dude. Okay, you're right. Sorry, I take that back. <laughs> and so there we are listening to these Lugans who have been drinking out of these tubs of pina coladas all day, belting out acapella 1970s rock songs. <laughs> it, was, it was the best lesson we could teach our 12-year-old daughter about who not to date when she's older. Uh, yes, that's true. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go. Live from Studio 3B. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast. With Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Featuring musical guest Sting. The ongoing history of Michael Hainsworth. And media. We'll look at the state of the industry and my bank account one year after jumping from the mainstream media airplane without a parachute. And uh, a plea from me, sign your donor card. I I actually may may need something from you. We'll tell you why Alan Olds didn't make it to the taping of the big show. I'm going to bed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. There's something about all-inclusives that gives adults this... um, (sighs) latitude and freedom to do whatever they want to be the biggest idiots that they can possibly be because god damn it i'm paying for it exactly and the the best ones are the cheapest all-inclusives in places like cuba where you know you get a week all-inclusive drinks in for 6.99 well (laughs) 
you get a really interesting class of people there. So, if this is the ongoing history of Michael Hainsworth, you want to do a little ongoing history of, of Michael Hainsworth new music style intro? <laughs> uh, okay. You think you can pull something out of your ass? All right. Um... <clears throat> On April 4th, 2018, Michael Hainsworth woke up and looked at the clock, and he thought to himself, this is it. I am changing my entire life. No more am I going back to this television studio to take orders from somebody else. I am going to completely reinvent myself for this new digital world. It's going to scare the hell out of me, but you know what? I'm going to make it happen. So this time a year ago, I jumped out of the mainstream media airplane without a parachute and had to stitch it on the way down. Remember, uh, you were uh, rather apprehensive about this. Yeah, it was either the smartest thing I had ever done or the dumbest thing I had ever done. And what did I tell you it was? You told me it was the smartest thing I ever done. Right. You know what? You were right. Mm -hmm. You absolutely were right. The lessons I have learned over the course of the last 12 months of going from a guy who knew exactly what he was doing at literally every given minute of his work day to having no idea what's happening next. <laughs> it, it, it was amazing. You know, I, I spent 30 years believing that I knew better than the boss. And now that I'm the boss, I'm really getting a taste of what life is like on the other side. Uh -huh. Something that you actually got to experience, what, about a decade ago? Uh, yes. So I was a drone. Then I became a middle manager. Uh, then I became another drone. Then I became unemployed. Then I became a self-employed manager drone. And how did that work out for you? Well, I've been doing it now, how long? Now about a decade. Uh, well, for this, the second time around since 2014. So, no, it's longer than that, 2011. 2011. So, uh, and, I, and I did it before then, before this too, back in the 90s. So it's, it's, it's an awful lot of work being your own boss, running your own business, and coming up with the discipline and the procedures and the logistics just to make it through the day. But in the end, it's very empowering. And if something is successful, well, it's, it's all up to you. If something fails, well, then it's on you. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's something really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's really satisfying knowing that you're in control. Well, so far, things seem to be going fairly well. Uh, as I said, when I jumped, I didn't have a parachute, and the one that I stitched on the way down turned out to be my documentary platform, Futurhythmic, and it's been doing really, really well. Episode one, more than a quarter million views. Nice. And we've had more than a million impressions on the website, and we know that impressions aren't the be-all and end-all metric. But combined with the impressions, the time on page, the number of pages people view when they go to the website that we built, designed to bring in researchers and writers to expand upon the topics that we're discussing in the episodes, it's been remarkably successful, more so than I ever could have imagined. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I wasn't the only guy working on it. Oh, what do you mean? Well, I hired oh, I a see. company I that... See knows how to do a lot of this stuff. I hired a production company to handle the day-to-day -day logistics of doing a, a documentary series. And I got to be, as the executive producer, the guy who ultimately has all the responsibility but gets to make the decisions too. And my, my favorite story out of that 
had to do with my recognition that if I was going to be successful as a leader, as a boss, as the guy at the top, I had to look at the other people who were my bosses and learn from them. And I applied during my 30 years in, in media um, one mantra, which was listen to what the boss tells me and then do the exact opposite. <laughs> yes. When it came to being the boss, I had another opportunity to look at all the bosses I had over the course of my, my three-decade-long career in mainstream media and pick out the good, the bad, and the ugly. And in many cases, I find myself asking, what would that garbage can-kicking boss I had for all those years do in this particular situation? And then I would do the exact opposite. And so far, so good. They haven't put my head on a stake yet. Well, the difference is that he's working, those old bosses were working in big, large corporations that uh, were very hierarchical. Uh, you're working in a small, uh, in a small company, which you don't have employees, you have contractors, right? Well, at the end of the day, I have people I can still fire. And that's the ultimate point is that the power still rests with me, but the knowledge doesn't necessarily always rest with me. I'm not always the smartest guy in any given meeting. And the best lesson that I learned, courtesy of these garbage can kicking bosses, was step back, let the smart people do their thing, and recognize that even though you may not have all the answers, at the end of the day, it's still your decision. You're still the boss. Let the smart people do their jobs and don't get in their way. The worst thing that you can possibly be is the smartest person in the room, because then you have nothing to learn from anybody. Right. So what you want to do is surround yourself with really smart people who are then empowered to do what you hired them to do. One of my best examples of that was the very first meeting I had with my production team. You know, there's a, almost a dozen people around a room kind of thing. We're all learning who each other is. And I kept saying, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do this. I want to do that. And one of the production people would put their hand up and repeatedly tell me why I couldn't do the thing I wanted to do. And I, I started to feel the stress build up in me and, and, and the energy well up. And I, I asked myself, why? Why am I feeling this way with this pushback from this person who's been in the business for long enough to be qualified to sit at the table? And I asked myself, what would that garbage can kicking boss of mine have done if he was seated in this position? Well, what he would have done is he would have pissed in every corner to mark his territory. Then he would have gone up one side of this person and down the other to make sure they knew who was boss. And at the end of the meeting, we all would have walked away going, wow, what an asshole. I can't believe we got rooked into this project. And so I did precisely the opposite. I let this person tell me what they knew and I took it to heart. And of course, I would fact check the statements and claims to the point where I became confident that I could trust this person's statements. And when something seemed weird or off to me, I didn't have to address it right away most of the time. I could go away, think about it, and if necessary, come back and address it. But certainly wasn't necessary to dress down the individual, particularly in front of their colleagues. Something that, as you, I'm sure, witnessed as much as I did, in media happens every single day. It certainly can. Uh, what you want people to be able to do is, is speak their mind about something, especially if they are engaged and have ownership of a project. If you try to do all the work for them, all the thinking for them, 
you're just going to discourage them because, you know, why am I here? You know all the answers. You know how you want things done. Why don't you just do it yourself? I made that mistake early on, and I thought I was doing my employees a favor by taking on all this work and saying, you know, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make sure that you don't have to worry about the things that I had to worry when I worry about when I was in your position, which was exactly the wrong thing to do. People want to know that you know that they are competent, that they can own a task or a responsibility. And at the same time, when you're at the head of the, uh, the, the, the table with everybody else, they are also probing your competence. Mm-hmm. Can this guy be trusted to follow through? Because we have put our professional lives on hold to hitch a wagon to this guy's star. Is he full of it? Or is he actually going to deliver something that we can be proud of and put on our resumes going forward? So often I'd look at the boss and go, what is it you do in a day, really? <laughs> and, and it's funny because now I, I can imagine that a lot on my team are asking the same thing of me. And as the executive producer, not just the producer, but the executive producer, I'm the guy with the tie dealing with the money people. Mm-hmm. And the money people have opinions. And I, I found myself recognizing something of a failing that I saw in others when I was in mainstream media. And that was that I now understand why my team might wonder what it is I do in a day, because I'm acting as a filter to the money people uh-huh. and their opinions, not a conduit. So many times the, the, the boss would act as a conduit from their boss and from the people above them. And I'd be sitting in a meeting or sitting in an office. I'd be dressed down for one thing or another. And I'd look behind the eyes of the person giving me the dress down and recognize you're just following somebody else's orders here. Oh, yeah. You don't necessarily believe what you're saying. You know that if you don't give me shit for whatever this is, that you're going to get shit at some point. So all you're doing is the shit flows downhill approach to management. And I, I guaranteed to myself that I would not do that with these people. That's the standard form of, of, of business relationships. Everything is hierarchical. It starts at the top. And if something goes wrong, all the shit flows downhill and it hits the people at the bottom the worst. And it's, it's, it's wrong, but it's old fashioned and it certainly doesn't work with the millennial generation. So you have to figure out new ways of, you know, getting people on your side. You want people. See, what you want as a boss is you want people to be self-managed you want them to own the opportunity and you want them to take pride in their work you have to get them to want to do what you need them to do and the 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 stick is never going to work you always 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 got to use some kind of carrot i wonder you know how much of this has to do with our business because for the longest time i've said broadcasters make terrible managers but the problem is mbas who make awesome managers because they've gone to school to learn how to manage. They've learned about the psychology of things. They've learned about the the difference between boss versus leader. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is MBAs make terrible broadcasters. This is true. Uh, now, I, I'm going to say that uh, working now, my biggest client is Chorus, uh, and I they've got that figured out. They honestly, honestly, in this this the current regime they've got, they've they've nailed it. And uh, they have broadcasters in charge of management and management in charge of some broadcasters. And everything seems to be working just fine, at least from my perspective. I I couldn't be happier at the moment. Uh, Again, I'm not an employee. I'm a contractor. 
Uh, but the way I'm being treated and the way things are going back and forth between me and them is, is fantastic. I wouldn't change a thing. Well, it's interesting that you say that um, because, uh, for example, Lou Skeezes, who was a guy I used to work with at BNN, uh, all the way back to when it was called Report on Business Television, ROB-TV, um, he has said something interesting at a time when I was an employee, not a contractor type scenario. Mm-hmm. He said, Michael, remember this. You're the boss. They're the client. You can always fire the client. This is true. And it never occurred to me that when it was really tough, when I was having a bad time, when that boss was riding my ass because of his own insecurities or what have you, um, that I could be the one to say, you know what? You're fired. Now, of course, I never did that because I spent an entire career in an industry that tells you if you're sick, show up. If you're dead, bring a doctor's note. Mm -hmm. And don't you dare take that vacation allocation. You know, there, there was an interesting development uh, at the federal level in the government of Canada where they expanded parental leave. And I put out this tweet that was immediately liked and retweeted by my followers who are also members of the media. And that was that take the parental leave now, particularly that they're expanding it. I was too scared to take it because, as you know, when you go on vacation in media, Somebody needs to fill in for you. Mm -hmm. And it is not a stereotype. It is a reality that often the person who fills in for you ends up taking your job because maybe they're younger. Maybe they're not as expensive. They prove themselves capable and competent in your absence. So not only are we reluctant to take time off in media, but when we do, we're often punished for it, let alone taking parental leave. So I didn't have the nerve to take that parental leave. And, you know, my wife had said it, others had said it, when you're on your deathbed, are you really going to be lying there going, thank God I worked more? (laughs) No. And what kind of thanks are you going to get? None. It's just that they're going to have to, oh God, we're going to have to hire somebody to replace the dead guy. Yeah, exactly. You know, the the number of times I I heard of uh, a female colleague who was going to have a baby and behind the scenes management groaning about the pain in the ass that that creates. It just, you wouldn't dream in a million years of verbalizing that to someone in a traditional business environment. Because, you know, the well, HR I'll wait, I, I'll push back on that. Yeah, yeah. You'll see that in, in, in a number of areas, but it, it doesn't make it any better. It's, it's just wrong. Uh, the attitude, I mean, we could go off on a very long tangent here about how business in general treats women, especially women of a certain age. Oh, well... <laughs> Yeah, we definitely could go down that rabbit hole. My wife was a prime example of that. The last time when she was let go from 680 News, she was Canada's number one midday radio personality. Hands down. There was no disputing that fact. But interestingly enough, when it came time to swing the axe, it was only women. Mm -hmm. And it was only women over a certain age. Mm -hmm. And it was only women over a certain age who were told they had to work more for free. And they gave pushback to that. Ah, I found that very suspicious. Ah, my wife is caught in the same thing. She wasn't asked to work more for free. She was just asked to leave. Because of her age. Uh, or at least that's your expectation. Uh, well, you know, there was a opinion. We can go back to, the, to the, the period that you're talking about. An awful lot of women of a certain age all left or were asked to leave at pretty much the same time, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not just that one particular company or station. You see it a lot. I have a friend who's working in the advertising business. Uh, her severance 
runs out. She's in her 50s. Uh, her severance runs out next week. And uh, she was let go from an ad agency because, well, they wanted to change things up. And who did they keep? They kept the, guy, kept the guys. They got rid of the women. I got to tell you, it was the biggest reason why, as I looked at the calendar and saw that 2018 marked my 30th year in broadcasting, that I thought, I've got to get out as at the 30th year because 30 is a milestone. What's not a milestone is a pink slip at 31 years, at 32 years, whatever it would happen to be. And I'm only going to get grayer and I need to prove that I am capable and competent in the digital media world, which is quickly just becoming the media world. Mm -hmm. Like I remember a time uh, when we were talking with Pat Cardinal, a radio executive who was rolling his eyes when I waved the iPod around as he fired all the DJs at Jack FM and went <laughs> all music. And I said, well, what about this? And he rolled his eyes and said, digital dimes and analog dollars. And that is the arrogance of that attitude mm -hmm. that took place in the the latter half of, of, of the, the 2000s and into the 2010s. I recognize it's quickly becoming just regular media now. And if I'm going to be an authority figure in it, I need to be able to do that sooner rather than later, considering the biggest demographic in the workforce today is the millennial generation. So here's where my head is at, because I, I think you're on the, the, the trailing, the leading edge or the trailing edge of, of being a boomer. Uh, I'm very, very, very late boomer, very, very, very early Gen X. Right. So my theory is... And, and I, we weren't planning to, to talk about, you know, the ongoing history of Michael Hainsworth in this episode. As a matter of fact, uh, we're going to talk in a moment about, you know, why it is we didn't even think we we're going to have an episode today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Is that um, I believe that the boomer generation is the generation that ruined media, news media particularly. This was the generation that Edward R. Murrow handed news off to. They wrote it to its peak and then rode it into the ground because they didn't have the balls to push back against the bean counters who were making the decisions based upon money, not based upon the creativity necessary to build revenue in a declining industry and take risks with new technologies in a declining industry. They saw a light at the end of the tunnel and that light was their retirement. For the rest of us, it was an oncoming train called the internet. When we were working our way up through the industry, you're talking about the people who just wanted to hang on long enough to the way things used to be so they could cash out. Right. Leaving us with the mess. And they they did, finally. But it changing media right now is like changing the wings on an airplane in mid-flight. It's you still have, you know, all these media companies are owned by large conglomerates. They have weekly, monthly, quarterly nuts they have to hit with either Bay Street or Wall Street. So there's a lot of pressure to keep doing what you're doing and keep making the margins as, you know, what they used to be with less because that's what the Bay Street monster wants. That's what the Wall Street monster monster wants. And it's, it's only now where, and I can talk about a couple of companies, where we've seen them realize that, okay, rather than have all these individual silos, you know, TV and radio and publishing and whatever and whatever and whatever, you know, they shouldn't be separate. They should be all one thing and mm -hmm. there should be an overreaching integrated digital strategy for everything. Screw Bay Street who says that, well, you know what, we need 55% margin on your radio properties. 
that's never going to happen again. Mm-hmm. So what you need to do is completely reinvent the business model and not jump too quickly into what's happening because we've seen that happen before where everybody has a really good idea about where digital is going. And then six months later, after this project is finally built out, everybody's moved on to something different. And what you have to offer is completely outdated. There's a lot of gun shyness there. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati, from the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. I think what we need to do is request the listeners stop contributing to our PayPal and Patreon accounts and start contributing uh, to the fund to get you a new kidney. I need two. <laughs> okay, you really me, need two? Uh, I thought we could get away with just one. Well, here's here's what's going on. I thought I've I've we've talked about my kidney stone issues in the past, right? Well, for the most part, I have to admit I've edited it out oh, because okay. well, the, the squirminess of it all was just a little too much for for me. All right, for the past number of years, I've suffered from kidney stones. Anybody who's ever had them knows exactly how painful they are. I can only imagine. No, you can't. <laughs> um, for whatever reason, despite having them removed in some of the most excruciatingly painful and awkward ways, they keep coming back. And we don't know why. So uh, here's the latest episode. Uh, Starting at the end of February, I began to feel this telltale sign in my uh, pain in my back. And I thought, well, it can't be. It can't be anything related to a kidney stone on the left side because I, in December, just had all those stones out in one of these very awkward and uncomfortable ways. So it must have been an injury. I just assumed that it was, you know, dog park injury, I a dog park injury, something I did at the gym. I said funny on, a, on an airplane, you know, something like that. It wouldn't go away. And uh, we had a vacation coming up where we were going to go to Bali. So we were going to fly from Toronto to Paris and Paris to Singapore and Singapore to Bali. And we're going to spend some time in an area called Ubud up in the Indonesian jungle. And uh, it was it was going to be fantastic. And we had been planning this vacation for about six months. My wife really, really needed it. We were counting down the number of sleeps until we left. But last week, I started feeling, well, this pain wasn't going away. And the doctor's visit wasn't, didn't turn up anything that seemed to explain the underlying cause. Until we had the blood test. Uh-oh. Uh, meanwhile... I thought, well, if we're going to go to Bali on Saturday night, maybe I better just go to emergency and have a look and make sure that if this is, in fact, a kidney stone, they can give me some drugs so it'll pass, or at least I can tolerate the pain until it passes. Oh, would you like to pass it at 30,000 feet? Been there, done that. Oh, God. Um, And so they gave me all kinds of blood tests. Then they gave me an ultrasound. Then they gave me a CT scan. I've never had a CT scan before. I mean, this is wrong. And then suddenly I find myself in the operating room on Thursday night. the BP monitor and the AVV. Yes, certainly, Doc. And uh, get the machine that goes bing! And get the most expensive machines in case the administrator comes. Okay, 
jolly good. That's better. That's much, much better. Yes. More like it. Uh, still something missing, though. Hmm? Hmm. Patient. I have uh, an almost complete blockage of my left kidney and a partial blockage of my right kidney. There is a, a chemical in your blood that is a marker for how well your kidneys are functioning. It's called creatinine. Right. And uh, an average human has uh, a reading of 100. Uh, 100 or less. Okay. I was approaching 1,200. Wow. Dialysis starts at 1,300. So I was in danger of dual kidney failure. You're in need of the machine that goes ping. I was. So a uh, doctor went in, put a stent in, unblocked me on uh, this one side, and then kept me in the hospital for Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and into today, which is Monday, on an IV drip and a morphine drip, trying to restart my kidneys. So we could How was that morphine working for you, by the way? Uh, it was very important at some points. It really, really, really was. Did they hook you up to the machine where you have a button where you can control it yourself? It was a straight drip. Ah, see, when wifey went in uh, for the birth of our daughter, they give you, of course, it's not morphine, but they give you a, a machine yes. with a button where you can hit the button whenever you need to. And of course, there's a safety limit associated with it. And when the nurse came in, she said, hey, listen, uh, we're hitting the point soon where I'm not going to be able to let you use this anymore. In other words, she came in for last call. And so <laughs> wifey went pow, 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 just to get a little top up before they turned it off. <laughs> No, no dice for you though. No, no. So uh, we bought, we got the creatinine level down to two hundred and thirteen as of today. I have to go back to the surgeon tomorrow to figure out exactly how to get rid of the stent that they've implanted inside me and what to do about the kidney stones that are still there. So at this point, I have uh, two kidneys that are reasonably well functioning, and but need to be um, further repaired and have to have some parts removed. So is this just not a simple case of you cutting back on, you know, the foie gras? No, 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 no. There's something, there's, there's something else. If you look at all the blood tests that I took and you see all the indicators, there's something really wonky with my blood chemistry and my, uh, and my hormone levels. Uh, so something's not working. So it could be, could be my, um, any number of, of glands that aren't uh, pumping out what they're supposed to pump out, or it could be a genetic thing. Or it could be some health supplements I was taking. We don't know. So that's the big thing that we have to figure out. All right. So if you would like to forego your participation in the world's worst intern program, you can join the world's best organ donor program. <laughs> I'm on John Hopkins Medicine's website, and it says, if you are a living donor, the requirement is you have to be in good physical and mental health. So that immediately takes me off the list. You must be at least 18 years of old age, must have a body mass index, a BMI of less than 35. That's pretty generous, actually. I'm, I'm in the positive column for you on that front, because yeah. I think my BMI is like two. Yeah, you're a skinny little guy. Uh, you must be free from the following. Uncontrolled high blood pressure. Uh, All right. Okay, no, that's, that's not Diabetes. Me. Yeah, okay. Cancer. Good. Hepatitis. Good. Organ disease. Th thank you, by the way, for assuming that I'm also hepatitis free. Yes. Uh, organ diseases, clear. Yes. And the only infectious disease I have is my sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So, uh, as a matter of fact, 
by and large, aside from the mental health issues, I might very well be a donor for you. Is is there some sort of requirement as far as blood type? Uh, there would be. I'm A positive, and the only reason why I remember what my blood type is is it's the only time in my life I've gotten an A+. Plus. <laughs> you know what? I have no idea what my blood type is. How could you not know what your blood type is? Uh, given, given... At your age? Well, at my age. And <laughs> also, <laughs> the number of uh, procedures I've had recently, I should probably know this. Yeah, and then start donating, maybe stocking your own blood. Hey, have you heard that old people who stock the blood of the young in a very vampire-like way? Well... Scientists have just recently concluded that that is not helping old people at all. No. What is helping old people are children. You were smart. You grew your own organ farm. <laughs> I, got, I grew my own spare parts. That's right. It was funny. I, I was I was down at the Chorus Key, where, where your radio stations are, uh, having a, a conversation with Element FM. And we were talking about Futurhythmic and a whole bunch of stuff. And we were talking about the fact that there are some unintended consequences of all technology. And for the autonomous vehicle industry, one of the unintended consequences is that when vehicles can travel at a high rate of speed without getting into accidents, the medical community is going to have a huge problem with organ donors. Oh, yes. But uh, we have to also recognize when we think about technology, we can't think about it um, in isolation. For example, your smartphone has a whole bunch of technologies in it that when we first started getting them, we rolled our eyes and said, why would I need a camera in my phone? Right. Stuff like that. And now we have all these technologies coming together to create the smartphone. Similarly, while we're at the same stage of development in the smart car world, we're also at the same stage of development in the 3D printed organs business. Well, we hear of these labs that are growing meat. Right. That, that's the early stages of it. That That is your Tesla-level fake autopilot stage. Right. So if you are, can grow a steak, why can't you grow a heart? And we soon will. Within the next decade or so, we are expected to be able to grow our own organs. So as we have one problem presented by the benefit of autonomous vehicles, eliminating the types of horrific crashes that we've seen with regular vehicles, we're at the same time going to see 3D printed body parts. Don't go there. I won't. So you're going to be okay, right? Like, you're going to live? Uh, I'm going to be okay. I have another couple of weeks of treatment. At least one more round of surgery. We've got to get this stent out and we got to deal with these stones. But uh, other than that, uh, once we treat all the other underlying issues, I should be just fine. These are the only stones you're glad aren't rolling. Oh, God, I wish they would roll. I don't know. It's not a long corridor. It's not wide. <laughs> Yeah, maybe long. It's just not wide. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.